The scripture for this morning's sermon is in John 12. I'll be starting in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Let's pray now that God will speak to us. Our Father, we're approaching things now in the Gospel of John so sacred that it's difficult to put into words. And there's a part of me that feels completely unworthy to be the one to speak about these things. But I trust, Father, that you have us in this text as a church on purpose, and I trust that you have put your hand on me to help us dive into it. And so I pray for your help as I speak, and I pray for your help for all of us as we hear the Word of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we watch you surrender everything to the will of your Father for the glory of his name and the blessing of the nations, I pray that we would be inspired to follow you and that out of love we would commit to serve you and out of love we would commit to follow you. Out of love we would want to be wherever you are and do whatever it is that you would want us to do. Oh, Jesus, please come, I pray, and powerfully speak to us by your Spirit through your word. And for what you will do, we give you our thanks and praise. In your holy and sacred name we pray, amen. By the grace of his father and by the gratefulness of Lazarus's family, Jesus had been anointed in the town of Bethany for two distinct but related purposes. On the one hand, he was anointed for burial because he was about to become the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And on the other hand, he was anointed as king because he was soon about to be enthroned as the king of kings over heaven and earth forever and ever. So I just want to begin by helping us understand that the anointing story at the beginning of chapter 12 served two purposes that are related but distinct. Jesus would soon become the Passover lamb and he would soon be enthroned as the king of kings. For both of these things he was anointed. Several days after that anointing took place, Jesus ascended up the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives with his disciples. He went over the top and he rode down the western slopes toward the city of Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Many of his disciples were with him. They were singing his praises aloud. And a great crowd of people came out from the city of Jerusalem and they met him out there on the road. And they joined in the praise of him and they escorted him into that sacred city in honor of who he was and in honor of what was about to transpire. Although they didn't completely understand who he was and they did not totally get what he was up to in these days, Jesus did not refuse their praise. Even when the Pharisees rebuked him for receiving their worship, he did not refuse their praise because he knew that he had come into this city not in his flesh. He knew that he had come into this city by faith. He had come into this city in full submission to his Father. He came into this city to fulfill prophecies that had been spoken hundreds of years before the fact. Jesus walked into that city as a submissive man, who would soon become the Passover lamb and who would soon be enthroned as the great king of kings over all of heaven and all of earth. As for the Pharisees, they were frankly overwhelmed by the enormity of the response to Jesus, by the size of the crowds that were now gathering to him. They were exasperated. They were at their wits' end. And so you'll see in verse 19 that they said to each other, 
They said, you, are, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And with that, they deepened their resolve to, to bring a, an end to the life and to the ministry of Jesus as soon as was humanly possible. Their teeth were sharpened, their plans were clear, and their eyes were set fully on Jesus Christ. When the Pharisees said that the whole world had gone after Jesus, they were exaggerating to make a point. But ironically, it turns out that at this feast, some people from around the world had actually come to seek Jesus. You'll see there in verse 20 that the very next thing John tells us is that among the hundreds of thousands of people who had come to Jerusalem to worship God through the ceremonies of the Passover, there were some Greeks there as well. Now, in this case, the word Greeks does not refer to people who were born and raised in Greece. In this case, the word Greek simply means Gentiles. And these Gentiles were probably of the kind that we call God-fearing Gentiles. So this means that this group of people were most likely those who feared the Lord, the God of the Jews, who had actually embraced the Jewish way of life, and that's why they were at the feast, but they had stopped short of becoming full converts to Judaism. To be a full convert to Judaism meant that you had to be circumcised, and it meant that you had to observe all the particulars of the law every day of, of your life. And so for many Gentiles who saw a vision of the glory of the God of Israel, they wanted to come near, but they did not want to fully convert. In the book of Acts, the, the man that we know as Cornelius, he was one of these kind. He was a, a God-fearing Gentile. And probably, most likely, this group of people here were God-fearing Gentiles. They came into the city to worship God. But their precise identity aside, the most important thing we need to know about them is for whatever reason, they were interested in Jesus and they wanted to see Jesus. We're not really sure how they even knew of him or why they wanted to get uh, with him, why they wanted to spend time with him, why they wanted to see him. It's possible that they were previously aware of his ministry. It's probable that they had heard the story of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you sh surely would want to see a teacher face to face who had just raised someone from the dead. It's also possible that they had heard of Jesus cleansing the temple and preparing the way for the Gentiles to worship him and, and then wanted to gather to him. What I mean is that we learn in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, that early in this particular week, Jesus again went into the court of the Gentiles and cleansed the temple of those who had turned it from a house of worship into a house of merchandise. John doesn't tell us the story of the second cleansing because he's assuming that we've read the other Gospels. But just before this scene transpired, Jesus had cleansed the temple, and it's possible that these Gentiles watched him do that. And it's possible that for one or more of these reasons, they wanted to gather near to him. Whatever their motivations, this group of people approached one of Jesus' disciples named Philip, and they asked permission to come and see Jesus. We have to get the picture that Christ was surrounded by many thousands of people. It would not have been easy to get near to him. And so they came and they asked permission of Philip. Now Philip, John tells us, was from Bethsaida. And Bethsaida was located in the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's the hometown of Peter and Andrew as well. That area is a heavily Gentile area. And since Philip's name was a, a Greek name, since Philip spoke Greek, and since he was from an area where there were many Gentiles, he probably looked and sounded like someone who would be friendly to them and, and who was familiar to them. It's possible that some people in this group of Gentiles actually even knew Philip. But for whatever reason, they were drawn to him and they asked him, please let us see Jesus. He wisely wanted a second opinion before he bothered the Lord. And so he went to Andrew and together they decided to bring this news to Jesus. And when they did, beloved, Jesus when he heard this news, he took it as a very significant sign from his father. So significant that he raised his voice and said probably in about as a, a loud a voice as he could, he said, now the hour has come, or the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus here 
use the term son of man to refer himself because, uh, to refer to himself because he was identifying himself with many prophecies that were made in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Daniel. Of the 107 or so times the term son of man is used in the Old Testament, 93 of them appear in the book of Ezekiel. Two of them appear in the book of Daniel, but those two in the book of Daniel are very significant. And trust me, when Jesus takes this term and applies it to himself, he is saying, I am that guy. I am the one that has been prophesied about for all these hundreds of, and hundreds of years. And when he, again, when he used the term son of man to refer to himself, also what he was doing is tying up a, a theme that he had been teaching to his disciples for the past several years. He was bringing it to a crescendo and saying that the time had come for something very significant to happen. Let me just read for you. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read for you three times that Jesus has already referred to himself with this term and focused the people's attention on something specific. First, to Nicodemus, Jesus said this. He said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he's using the term Son of Man and he's focusing Nicodemus' attention on the cross and on the ascension. Then later, when he was speaking to the crowd that was really struggling with his teaching about his blood and about his flesh, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, in that text, he does not specifically refer to the cross, but what else could he be referring to except for his broken body and his spilled blood? So in using the Son of Man, he's saying, I have come to fulfill ancient prophecy in a very particular way. I have come to give my life over to the Father that he may lift me up and draw the nations to me. And finally, to the Jewish leaders who seemed to have believed in Jesus but then pulled back from him in unbelief, he said this, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you have put him up on the cross, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Beloved, I've only read for you a few times, but every time Jesus used this term, son of man, it had what we call theologically eschatological implications. In other words, it referred to the destiny of Jesus on the earth and beyond his time on the earth. And then the three times that I read for you today uh, specifically focus our attention on the cross, on his being lifted up, on his fulfilling all things by becoming the Passover lamb. And so when we come to 1223 and we hear Jesus say that now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, well then we should understand that he's bringing to a crescendo a teaching that he has been giving for several years, namely He's saying that the Father had sent him into the world to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's saying that after that, he would be resurrected and ascended into heaven. He would be lifted up into the highest place and be enthroned there as the King of Kings. Jesus was about to descend to the very lowest place that he might be exalted to the very highest place. That's what he's talking about here. This is what he's trying to to, to capture our attention with. He's about to go very low that he might be exalted very high. In fact, to the very lowest place that he might be exalted to the very highest place. Now before I move on with the story, I want to pause and just address a question, namely, what does it mean to be glorified? Sometimes we throw a word like this around and we assume we know what we're talking about, but maybe, maybe we're not clear about what's being said. What does it mean for him to be glorified? Well, if you just look at it uh, from a dictionary definitional point of view, the word glorified means that a person is revealed. It means that a person is exalted. And it means that a person is praised. Three things very much related to each other. 
To be glorified means that they're revealed. Something about them becomes known. Something about them is seen that was not seen before. Something about them is felt that was not felt before. There, there's a revelation. There's a new sight. There's new insight about them. And then on the basis of what is revealed, they're exalted. They, 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 their greatness is revealed, and so their greatness is acknowledged. They become exalted. There's a, a sense of, oh, Jesus is greater than I thought he was. He's higher than I thought he was. He's more than I ever conceived him to be. And then finally, on the basis of that, to be glorified means to be praised. It means to be worshipped. It means to be adored. It means to be honored. So in this particular case, the Father was about to reveal the fullness of himself through the Son in a way he had never done before and in a way he has never done since. And he was about to do this in a very unusual way, namely, he was going to reveal, exalt, and exalt himself that he might be praised through the arrest, the trial, the conviction, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of Jesus Christ. He was going to lead Jesus to descend to the very lowest place that he might eternally exalt him to the highest place. And that whole combination of things a great and eternal Savior that would willingly go to the lowest place and then be exalted to the highest place. That combination of things would be the pinnacle of the revelation of his glory in heaven and on earth. It would become the cause for which Jesus would be worshipped forever and ever and ever, along with his Father and along, of course, with the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, what he meant was that his time had come for him and for the Father to be revealed, to be exalted, and to be praised as never before. And this would happen through the cross and everything that surrounds the cross. With this in mind, Jesus went on to share a, a very profound metaphor with his disciples. It's been very impactful to me, something that's just stuck with me. I've heard it, obviously, before, but as I've studied this, this metaphor has just become so meaningful to me, and I pray that it will become meaningful to you as well. Specifically, Jesus said this in verse 24, truly, truly I say to you with deep earnestness and utter conviction in my heart, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I'm not much of a farmer. I don't know much about things like this, so thank God, though, there's Google these days. I Googled a grain of wheat, and I studied it. I would really encourage you to do that. Google grain of wheat after church and study. There's these pictures that show you what's inside of a little grain of wheat. It's stunning what God has created in this little grain of wheat. A grain of wheat has within itself the potential for much life, but in order for that life to become realized, in order for it to become released, it has to be buried in the ground. It has to be crushed by the earth. It has to be cracked open. And then it has to be nourished by the soil and by water so that it can emerge from the earth and become something much greater than itself, so that it can emerge from the earth and produce uh, nourishment for other people to the glory of God. If it decides not to be buried in the earth, all of its potential remains dormant and it will in fact die. But if it allows itself, if it submits to the will of God and allows itself to be buried in the earth, then it will produce much fruit for the glory of God and for the nourishment of others. Like that grain of wheat, Jesus would soon be glorified by rejecting earthly comfort, by hating his life in this world, and instead embracing the will of the Father by dying, giving himself to the earth, and then emerging from the earth to bear much fruit for the glory of the Father and the good of other people. As he said in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And indeed, beloved, since Jesus refused to cling to the life that he had in this world, but instead fully surrendered himself to the will of his Father, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence. He kept his life 
with the Father forever, and he became the source of eternal life for everybody who will put their faith in him by faith through grace. It was not enjoyable for Jesus to become like a grain of wheat and be buried in the ground, but he did do this for the joy that was set before him. And that joy was his fellowship with the Father and the fruit that would come out of full, happy submission to the Father. Moment by moment, there were moments of torturous agony in Jesus. We're gonna see this in just a second. But overall, he did what he did because he preferred his Father over all things. And the joy of knowing his Father and submitting to his Father and bearing fruit for the glory of his Father far outweighed any pain that he would have to endure. Please understand that Jesus submitting himself like a grain of wheat to the earth was an act of love. It was not an act of extremism. And this fruit was going to be so great that not only Jewish people, but some people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would be drawn to Jesus, of which these Greeks, these Gentiles at the Passover feast were just a small glimpse. It was the the first trickle of what would soon become a great flood around the world. Having shared this parable with his disciples and interpreted its meaning in verse 25, Jesus now turns his attention fully toward his disciples, including us, and he says this in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father father will honor him. Beloved, Jesus followed the will of his Father no matter what came out of that because he served his Father in truth. It's easy to say that you serve somebody, but the proof is in the fruit, and the fruit of service to God is actually following in the will and ways of God, actually doing what God has asked, what God has commanded, what God has prescribed. And Jesus served his Father in truth in this way because he loved his Father and enjoyed unbroken communion with him. Wherever the Father was, there Jesus was. And because of his heartfelt affection for the Father, his deep, passionate loyalty to the Father, and his unbroken obedience before the Father, the Father has honored honored Jesus by giving him the name that is above every name and giving him the position that is above every position, namely the great eternal King of kings, Lord of lords, and high priest of heaven and of earth. Likewise, those who love Jesus commit themselves to serving Jesus, and those who serve Jesus actually follow behind him, beloved. Wherever Jesus is, the servant of God wants to be there. Whatever Jesus is involved in, the true lover of God wants to labor in those kinds of fields. Whatever Jesus values and emphasizes this, the servant of God wants to value and emphasize. Whatever Jesus commands, this is their delight to do, even if it's difficult, even if there's a struggle in the process. The one who is truly given over to Jesus follows Jesus out of a heart of love. And while some people in our world, especially in America, but this teaching is spreading like gangrene around the world, while some people teach that to come to Jesus means bliss and happiness and prosperity always in this life, in this world, the truth of the matter is that for those who submit themselves to Christ and and devote themselves to following him will suffer in this world. Like Jesus, we will be buried in the soil of the grace of God, and the process of being buried and cracked open is not always fun, beloved. It's not always easy. It's not always outwardly pleasing. It's not always something that we would choose. But in the end, in the end, it is the right way. Because in that way is the great grace of God that will take a cracked seed and cause much life to emerge for the glory of God and for the good of other people. It is an amazing thing, an amazing thing to think that as Jesus is moving toward the cross and explaining to us why he's doing what he's doing, he's also saying, and by the way, come along and be like me. 
Come along and be like me. I love my Father, and therefore I submit to my Father. Not the other way around. And so come and love me, and as you love me, fully surrender yourself to me. For those who will hear this call and embrace this way of life, Jesus makes a promise. He says that if we will love him and serve him and follow him, the Father will honor us. That's a stunning thing to think about, beloved. If you have any sight of the magnitude of the glory of God, it will stun you that he would want to honor you at all. And while John doesn't really tell us here how this works, we know from other parts of Scripture how this works. It turns out that when someone believes in Jesus Christ, they actually become one with him. And in becoming one with him, he takes our sin upon him and does away with it on the cross. And having... uh, dealt with the reality and the consequence of our sin, the honor that the Father has placed on Christ fully comes upon those who are one with Christ. It is a great exchange and an unbelievable manifestation of grace that through Jesus Christ, we give him our condemnation and he gives us his honor. What an amazing, amazing thing to think about. And so, beloved, like a grain of wheat... Let us surrender ourselves to the will of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might be buried in the soil of his grace and cracked open and emerge from that soil with new life to the glory of God and for the blessing of other people. Let us not choose to stay out of the soil and so remain isolated and eventually just shrivel up and die. But let us invest the life that God has invested in us by giving that life back to him. And now, having said these things, Jesus, in verse 27, turns the attention back on himself. He makes a public statement in the city of God, in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people. He makes a public statement about what's happening inside of his heart at this moment. He says specifically, now, my soul is troubled. My soul is troubled. Now, that word for troubled means to be shaken up or stirred up or agitated. And it can even mean to be intimidated by something or to be terrified. So this is a strong word is what I'm trying to say. When he's saying I'm troubled, he's not saying like, yeah, I feel something's not quite right with me today. I feel a little bothered. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is deep inside of me, I am stirred up. I am moved. I'm agitated. He might even be saying that he's afraid. He might even be saying that he is terrified. And so in the light of what he's feeling inside, he asks a question of his disciples and says, and what shall I say? What shall I say with these feelings in my heart? What shall I do with them? What shall I express to the Father? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Now in the ESV, that appears as two separate questions. What shall I say? Question one. Father, save me from this hour. Question two. The slight majority of scholars actually thinks that we should read this as a question and a statement. We should hear Jesus saying, and what shall I say? And then he answers his own question by saying, Father, save me from this hour. Oh God, save me from this hour. Take this cup from me if there's any way. Take this cup from me. Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus cried out and prayed for release from what is an unimaginable time of suffering to us. So here in this crowd, Jesus probably was saying, Father, take this hour from me. Save me from this hour. Oh, Father, deliver me. Oh, Father, make a way. Make another path. But no matter how we hear Jesus' words, either as another question or as a statement, it's most important that we see how he resolves the tension here, how what he does with the great gripping terror that is in his heart. Please notice in the latter part of verse 27, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is the whole reason I was born, this whole reason I was sent into the world, so I'm going to pray another prayer. Forget about that. Here's what I'm going to pray. Father, glorify your name. Whatever it takes, whatever I have to endure, however long that takes, whatever the intensity of the pain, oh, Father, glorify your name. This is much like the moment in the garden when Jesus said, yes, Father, if there's a way, take the cup from me. But listen, not my will be done, but your will be done. 
This is what's on my heart. This is what I'm dealing with. But what I want more than anything is what you want. So, Father, no matter what, do your will. I surrender myself to you. Beloved Adam in the garden had the easiest command you could imagine. God gave him life and gave him abundant provision and said, indulge in all of it. Just don't eat that one thing over there. Adam did the one thing God told him not to do. He failed miserably, and we're all living with the consequences even to this day. Jesus was given the most impossible command that could ever be given or imagined, and his heart was to say, Father, no matter the terror, no matter the difficulty, not my will be done, but your will be done. His heart was to say, Father, please, in and through all these things, glorify your name, the Father heard the prayer of Jesus. The Father knew the heart of Jesus. The Father knew the sincerity of Jesus. And since Jesus had spoken these things out loud in the hearing of others, the Father chose, in this case, only the third time in all the Gospels, to actually speak out loud in an audible voice in the hearing of other people. And he said in verse 28, I have glorified it, my name, and I will glorify it again. Surely the Father meant by this that he had glorified his name through the life, through the words, through the works of Jesus. The whole ministry of Jesus, the whole life of Jesus had been a great glory to the Father. We're going to see this theme again pop up in John 17 and maybe in a couple places in between. But the Father had already granted this request and now the Father is saying, Surely, my son, it is my pleasure to glorify myself through everything you're about to endure. Or if I could say this in, slightly, in a slightly different way, my son, as torturous as obedience will be for you in these moments, it's not for nothing. As torturous as this is going to seem, as torturous as it's actually going to be through the process, I'm going to crack you open like that seed. I'm going to cause you to emerge from the soil of my will for you, and I'm going to cause you to become the most fruitful tree that could ever be imagined and that has ever been or ever will be. Your suffering will not be for nothing. I will glorify my name through you, O oh, beloved. How much I admire the Son's heart to the Father and how much I admire the Father's response back to the Son. I am just literally overwhelmed, captivated by the deep, powerful, passionate, eternal love between the Father and the Son that's going to become more and more prominent in the Gospel of John in the next few chapters. As for the crowd, they were there and they did hear a noise. They heard something when the Father spoke to Jesus, but they didn't know what it was. They couldn't make it out. They couldn't discern the words. Some of them thought that a, a thunder had just clapped, which would have been very unusual. This was uh, springtime in Jerusalem. There probably wasn't a cloud in the sky. So from where did the thunder come? Nobody knew. Other people said, no, it's not thunder. An angel has spoken to him. But whatever their various points of view about this noise, they all knew that something unusual had just happened, and they all knew that it centered around Jesus Christ, beloved. They knew this. Somehow or other, they knew that God was saying, this is the man, look to him. He's an unusual man, and this is an unusual moment. And knowing that the Father had captivated the attention of the crowd, Jesus spoke again and taught them. In verse 30, he began and said, this voice came for your sake, not for mine. This is much like when he was at the tomb of Lazarus and said, I pray these things, Father, for their sake, not for our sake. And now he's saying again that, listen, I did not need your audible affirmation of my prayer. I did not need to know that you heard me or that you would answer me, that you would grant me the things that I have asked for because I know you and I know our relationship. I know our communion. I know our pattern of life. And I know that you had already granted me these things before I prayed them out loud. But Father, you gave this voice for the sake of these people, and boy, did these people need it. These people needed to know that they were at the precipice of the center point of history. It's hard for us to understand being a distant observers after the fact, but beloved, this was about to be the point 
and still is the point at which all of history culminated. Everything is right here. The people were there. Their eyes were open. Their ears were open. And they needed to be paying attention. And I think the Father both wanted to show them that his favor was upon Jesus, and he wanted to wake them up so that they would see the things that were about to transpire, so that they would pay careful attention to the details that were to come. And boy, did they ever need to pay careful attention. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, now, at this time, at this hour, when the Son of Man is glorified, now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now when Jesus says the ruler of this world, he is, of course, talking about Satan. And he is saying that the time had finally come for him and his regime to be judged. He is saying that the wrath of God was about to be poured out on Satan with great displacing force so that he would be cast out of his powerful position forever. Satan does still have a measure of power, but make no mistake about this. He has been cast out of his place of authority. Today, our spiritual enemies are already defeated enemies. Never forget that, warriors of God. Your enemies are already defeated. Not just that they will be defeated. They are already defeated. Satan has been dislodged from his place. Now, many Jews, including Jesus' disciples, wanted him to dislodge the Roman government so that they could be free in the land of promise. But Jesus had his eyes on a much greater ruler with a much greater government in a much farther reach. And he was saying that in these coming days, he was about to defeat him. He was about to displace him. And ironically, he was going to do this in a way nobody would imagine. If you were to face a great foe, you would probably not come up with this kind of plan. Jesus, under the guidance of the Father, planned to judge Satan and unseat Satan by taking upon himself the judgment that rightly belonged to the world. And by sitting under the judgment of the Father, so please hear what I'm saying. When Jesus says the world is about to be judged, do you know what he's saying? I'm about to be judged. He's about to take upon himself the righteous judgment that belongs to other people. And by sitting under the judgment of the Father, Jesus would then also pronounce judgment on the one who rebelled against the Father, thus rendering him impotent. And by sitting under the judgment of the Father, Jesus would draw all people to himself through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, through his ascension into heaven. This doesn't mean, of course, that every single person will be saved, but it does mean that through the passion and suffering of Christ, through the process of being cracked open and reemerging from the earth, that Jesus would and still will save some people from every tribe and tongue and nation on this earth, of whom those Gentiles at the Passover feast were just the first example. God would soon, very soon, use Jesus to do great things. Let me read for you from Hebrews chapter 2, just a couple verses. The author writes, this is chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Since therefore the children of God share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus that is, likewise partook of these same things. He became flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. From a fleshly point of view, it does not make sense to conquer somebody by being subject to their plans against you. It does not make sense to gain victory by experiencing defeat, does it? But in the great wisdom of the Father, which is greater than our wisdom, Jesus actually was not being defeated. Never for a single moment was Jesus defeated. What Jesus was is perfectly submissive. What Jesus was 
was perfectly willing to offer the only acceptable sacrifice for sin that could ever be made in the history of the world. Only he who had infinitely valuable blood could make an infinitely valuable payment for sin so that everyone who believes in him might be freed from their sin and have eternal life, have restored communion with the Father. So he was not defeated on the cross. He was willingly laying down his life And then as he said in chapter 10, he would willingly take it up again. He would willingly overcome death and therefore destroy the one who had the power of death and therefore offer life and mercy to everyone who would look to him and simply believe in him, simply receive his once for all sacrifice for sins. Beloved, I want to suggest to you that the height of the revelation of the glory of God is not the creation of the world. But it is the cross and everything that surrounds it. When you think about the times at which God most visibly, powerfully, and permanently revealed his glory, you might be tempted to say it was at creation when his grace overflowed in the explosion of many things and beings that came into being. And there would be some truth to that. Creation is a pretty awesome display of the glory of God. Even to this day, if we'd simply have eyes to see. But a greater display still is the glory that was revealed at the cross and everything that surrounds the cross. And since this moment of glorification is the height of the glorification of the Father and of the Son, I want to suggest that it ought to be at the center of our lives if we believe in Jesus Christ. Our thoughts ought to be occupied with these things. Our affections ought to be captivated by these things. And our wills ought to be surrendered to the will of him who surrendered his will to the Father that we might live. Again, I say again, since the cross and all that surrounds it is the height of the revelation of the glory of God, then it ought to occupy the center place in our lives. Now, even as the crowd heard the voice from heaven but didn't understand what was being said, so they heard the words of Jesus and they understood the literal words, but they did not get his meaning. They did not track with him. John Calvin's point of view here is that the people's hearts are hard. Even though they got God standing right in front of them, speaking such clear words, they simply cannot understand. And we'll hear more about that next week. The next passage is an amazing passage that helps us understand why some people can hear the gospel and not believe. But for now, they heard Jesus' words, they misunderstood, and they asked a question in verse 34. They said, we have heard from the law in this case meaning the entire Old Testament, that the Christ remains forever. In other words, he's going to come to the earth and he's going to stay upon the earth forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, taken away from the earth? Who is this Son of Man? Now, the people got the idea that the Christ would remain forever from the Bible. If we had time, we'd look at a bunch of passages. They're there. They understood this teaching rightly. And because they understood it rightly, their question actually was an insightful question. It was a good question. But here was the problem with the question. It completely missed the point. So often, beloved, God is trying to speak to us, and we're kind of listening, but we're not really listening. God is trying to speak clearly, even like he's trying to speak clearly to this church right now. And some of you are hearing and you're truly hearing. Others of you are listening and your mind is out in left field somewhere. You're missing the point. These people missed the point. Their question was good, but it was a distraction. And since Jesus was not interested in commenting upon related but peripheral theological matters, even if they were important, he returned to the topic of discipleship and he reiterated the main thing he was trying to say, for them at least, albeit he now used a different metaphor. Specifically, he said, the light is among you for a little while longer, meaning that he was only gonna be in their presence for a few more days, and then for 40 more days between the resurrection and the ascension. And since the light of the world, since Jesus in the form of flesh would not be long with them, he had something more he simply had to say to them. Verses 35 and 36. 
Oh, Father, please give us ears to hear your words. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. The one who refuses to follow in the light of Christ will be blinded by that decision. Therefore, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Please notice that in verses 35 and 36, Jesus links the words walking in the light with believing in the light. Walking and believing, they're very intimately related to each other. To walk with Jesus is to believe in what he has said and what he has done. It is to receive him as the only source of mercy from God and the only way to have proper, enduring fellowship with God. And conversely, to believe in Jesus is to walk with him. You may remember from John chapter 10 when I said repeatedly, true sheep follow Jesus. They don't just admire him. They don't just speak well of him. They actually follow after him. And to believe in him, therefore, is to walk with him. It's to serve him. It's to follow him. It's to obey him out of love for him. And when one surrenders to the person and the will of Jesus in this way, he tells us that that person becomes a son of light and not merely a subject of God. By believing in Christ and clinging to Christ and following Christ, beloved, we become intimately related to Christ. We are transformed from, from enemies of the state into very children of God as children to a father who doesn't just shed his light upon us but transforms us with that light so that our very being beams with the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He makes us sons of light. And this is what he wanted the people to hear. This is what he wanted the people to do. He wanted to watch him walk to the cross and give his all for the glory of the Father. He wanted to watch this seed of grain be buried in the ground and bear much fruit that they might receive from him but also follow in his way that they might surrender their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, surrender their will to his will, and walk according to his commands. So while the people wanted Jesus to clear up for them a point of confusion, Jesus was determined to stay focused on the point. He, the very light of life, was about to embrace death so that Satan might be defeated and so that sinners like us might have eternal life in him. Like a grain of wheat, he would soon consent to be buried and crushed that he might again emerge from the ground and provide eternal life to some people from every tribe and tongue and nation in this world. And with that, John tells us at the end of verse 36 that Jesus departed from these people and he actually hid himself from them. He did not want to be bothered anymore. He wanted to, to draw away. He's gonna emerge one more time at the end of the chapter and speak and say some things. But for now, he wanted to draw again near to his father with his troubled heart and prepare his heart to walk in the will and ways that had been destined for him from before the foundation of the world. Beloved, please allow me to repeat for you one more time the main punch, I think, of this text, of this passage. Since the cross and all that surrounds it is the height of the revelation of the glory of God, it ought to be at the center of our lives. It ought to captivate our thoughts. It ought to captivate our affections. It ought to guide our wills. So in closing, I just want to ask you three simple questions and give you one simple assignment, and then I want to pray that God will help us. Here are the three questions. Number one, what captivates your thoughts, honestly? When you think about what you think about, what is it that you think about most? What has captivated your mind truly? Second thing, what captivates your affections? When you honestly think about what captures your heart, about what motivates you, about what you really love, about what you really desire, about what you really can't wait to do today or tomorrow or the next day, what is it that has truly captivated your heart? Where is Jesus among those things? Where does he rank? Where should he rank? Finally, third question, to whom or what do you most often surrender your will? 
when you think about why you do what you do, why do you do what you do? What is it that's motivating you? What is, it, what is it that's causing you to bend your will in one direction rather than another? When you think about this in truth, to whom is your will ultimately surrendered? Where is Jesus in that process? How high or low of a place does he have in your life? Those are the questions, and here is the very simple assignment. I want to encourage you to spend some time alone with God today or tomorrow at the latest. Don't wait too long. Get in his presence. Get alone. Open up to this text. Read it prayerfully. Now that you've heard a a brief explanation of the text, just read the text and trust that the Spirit will illuminate it for you, that he'll speak into your life through it. And as you read that text, ponder these questions. Father, what's captivating my mind? What's captivating my heart? What's captivating my will? Where are you and what should I do? Pray that God would give you insight. Beloved, our Father only reveals what is true in order to heal what is true and guide us in the way that we should go. It is scary to open up your life and say, Father, examine me. It's scary. But trust me, in the end it's good because your Father is good and His intentions are good and His will and His ways in our lives are good. So surrender and say, Father, show me and then give me power. Give me power to love you more than I love anything else or anyone else. Give me power to walk in your will and ways. Three questions in a simple assignment. I pray with all my heart, I pray that either through that exercise or another, you will Offer your hearts to God through Jesus Christ. Let me pray now that God will help us with that. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that the hour did come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And Lord Jesus, we're deeply grateful to you that like a good grain of wheat, you decided to surrender yourself to the soil of the grace of your Father. We're grateful that you allowed yourself to be cracked open. We're grateful that you emerged again from the earth filled with life for the glory of your Father and the good of anyone who will put their faith in you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for issuing to us the call that actually motivated your entire life, submission out of love. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see the beauty of what has been revealed through the cross and everything that surrounds it. I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of a son perfectly submitted to the Father. And I pray that by the Spirit, you would make that way of life attractive to us, Lord. That we would want to be captured by you in heart, in mind, and in will. And Father, by faith in what you will do, I want to give you thanks for what you will do in our lives as we draw near to you. For the glory of your name and the blessing of your people, we pray these things. Amen.